Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation podcast series at NYU Langone Health. These interviews make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guest, Dr. Stephen Flanagan, who is Howard A. Rusk Professor of Rehabilitation Medicine in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine and Chairperson of the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at NYU Langone Health. Podcast listeners have an opportunity to hear many interviews with exceptionally knowledgeable and interesting participants. Each segment usually is in the 15 to 20 minute range apart from the introduction of speakers. Occasionally, a pair of longer recordings is featured by individuals who participated in grand round presentations at the Rusk Institute of Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Health. This podcast by Dr. Flanagan is on the topic of rehabilitation in the context of health reform. His presentation occurred at a grand round session at Rusk on January 8, 2020. Okay, thanks very much for the introduction. I hope that most of you know me by now. It'll be uh, 12 years come April. Uh, so, uh, so I'm going to be talking today about the value that PM&R adds to healthcare, which is particularly important given that we're going through all sorts of healthcare reform, uh, which makes everybody have this you know, warm, fuzzy feeling inside. I'm sure. The, um, uh, but also, uh, thanks for inviting me, and, um, and, and, and kudos uh, um, uh, to Dr. Kieran and to our chief residents who've really done an outstanding job in getting uh, really great speakers for Grand Rounds. Uh, sorry you had to settle for me today, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Um, that all said, what I hope to achieve in the next hour or so, hopefully a little bit less, uh, uh, is to just give an overview of healthcare reform, particularly its impact um, on physical medicine and rehabilitation. We'll take a look at the not-so-recent past, uh, what we're dealing with now, and uh, hopefully where we want to be in the future. Uh, and then to give some very concrete, specific examples of how um, uh, programs around the country, as well as right here at NYU have taken advantage of some of these opportunities uh, to advance not only healthcare reform, uh, but PM&R and physiatrists in particular. So, uh, without any further ado, uh, healthcare reform, it's perfectly clear to everybody. We know what it's all about. We know what the impact is. Uh, we know where we're going. Um, and if you said yes, um, clearly you're just in a parallel universe because, man, this is confusing. Using, right? Um, you know, I, I'm involved in the AAPMNR and the Board of Governors. We've been looking at this for a long, long time, um, and it's just really hard to keep up with. So um, we'll try to give a concise picture of what's happened, what's going on, and where we're going. Uh, but healthcare reform has been going on for a while. I've been practicing now uh, for nearly, egad, three decades. I can't believe I had hair when I first started doing this. Um, 
Uh, and things have really changed. You know, when I was an inpatient doc at, at Mount Sinai, you know, the prospective payment system came into effect. Before that, we were you know, purely a, a per diem across all uh, payers, including Medicare. We had the, the in, enforcement, not the enactment, but the enforcement of what was then the 75% rule, which is now the 60% rule. And I you know you're all familiar with that. Basically, 60% of our patients and an ERF have to be within a certain case mix group. Otherwise, uh, your program won't be paid by Medicare. That would be awful. And lots of other things that, that have happened. We don't have to go through all of these. Uh, but basically, healthcare reform has impacted the entire healthcare system, but it's also had a very direct impact on physical medicine and rehabilitation of in, in, effects that we continue uh, to deal with to this very day. Um, so healthcare reform is real. Um, and, and, and why is it that the government is sort of uh, putting this upon us um, uh, to do something different? And, and I think this graph pretty much says it all. Uh, so over the course of 50 years from 1960 to 2010, which was just uh, a decade ago, can't believe that we're almost in a new decade, the income growth um, or wages uh, increased a mere 16%. That's, uh, I'm sure, is being discussed in political circles now that this is an election year. Uh, but the gross uh, domestic product increased um, 168%. You no, know, good healthy increase. But look at what happened uh, to national health expenditures. 818% increase in cost. This is tremendous, right? There's just no way uh, that this could be sustainable over any length of time. And the government also recognized not only are we spending this inordinate amount of money on health care, uh, the United States can no longer claim that we have the best outcomes. There are many other countries that actually have a longer life expectancy, for example. So we're spending a lot of money, and the government felt that we are just not getting our money's worth. So since this was not sustainable, uh, the government, in their infinite wisdom, came up with the sustainable growth rate. So this was intended um, to really um, uh, limit the uh, continued outlandish expansion of healthcare costs, uh, which included uh, you know, keeping uh, reimbursement to physicians uh, intact so they would only grow a certain amount um, each year. Now, you can well imagine Congress being a political organization um, that uh, spends lots of times with lobbyists. Every year we're bombarded by lobbyists uh, to say, you know, you can't restrict payments like you need to under this law. You need to fix this. And every year at the very last minute, uh, after lobbying by the AMA and AHA and every other three-letter acronym organization around, they would uh, establish a fix and, um, uh, and the uh, growth of expenditures would continue to increase. So uh, the sustainable growth rate was basically anything but sustainable. So this was not going to be uh, the fix that the government had hoped for. So, um, uh, so after uh, the passage of the Affordable Care Act, uh, lots of other things were happening, including um, uh, doing away with the sustainable um, growth rate. Uh, so here is a picture of the Senate. You can see in what well, you'll probably never see a vote like this in the Senate anytime soon. Uh, a 92 to 8 vote. Wow. Okay, talk about bipartisanship. Um, and they passed a new law, doing away with the sustainable growth 
growth rate. Um, uh, so SGR um, uh, passed away at the ripe old age of about 18, maybe 19, um, and 215, we said goodbye. Wonderful, we don't have to worry about this anymore. Everything is okay. Well, be careful what you wish for, because um, you didn't think that you know the government was just going to just do nothing and allow growth to to improve to increase the way it was. <laughs> Sorry, I had to just put that in there. Uh, it had to be replaced with something, uh, so it got <laughs> replaced with uh, the Medicare Access and Ships Reauthorization Act, which we know as MACRA, and this has actually been the law now um, uh, for several years. And basically, um, it redefined how physicians are going. Going to be reimbursed. And it basically falls into two categories. There's the merit-based incentive payment system, which is known as MIPS, and pretty much anybody practicing medicine um, uh, is falling underneath that. Um, you could also participate in an APM, alternative payment models. I'll spend just a little bit of time on that. Um, uh, but basically, this is how folks are being reimbursed, and certainly just about anybody who's full-time at NYU, uh, this is how we get reimbursed. It's based on quality, measuring, you know, physicians have to meet uh, some quality measures that CMS, by the way, came up with. Um, they have some panels that, you know, make some recommendation. There are improvement activities um, uh, that are geared to improve what we do in our practice, uh, promote interoperability. Ability. Uh, this is really providing patients with greater access to their care. Think my chart on Epic and why we're even doing that. Part of this is to meet the promoting interoperability component of MIPS and cost. And cost is actually how much any one physician um, uses to uh, money that they use to provide uh, care to Medicare Part A beneficiaries. Um, so it's cost. Um, and there's a score. Um, uh, and the whole idea of, of MACRA is basically to help achieve the triple aim of healthcare reform, which to improve healthcare quality, um, uh, better outcomes, improve the patient experience, um, and, 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 and what, uh, what they used to call improve efficiency, which uh, you all know is just a euphemism for basically decreasing costs. So this is the triple aim as it's been described. Uh, there are some who've gone a little bit further and refer to the quadruple aim of medicine, which is to do not just the triple aim, but how do we reform healthcare in order to actually improve the satisfaction of not just the patients that we're serving, but the folks who are actually providing those services. So, you know, we like to think of the quadruple aim of medicine. Uh, and hopefully some of what we've been doing in PMNR, including here at Rusk, has hopefully helped that at some level. So just really with, um, with MACRA, it is here, it is the law, it's not going anywhere. Um, you, kind of went through all of this. There was a lot of, you know, uh, initial buying and phasing and what have you. It's here. You're either doing MIPS or you're doing APM. If you're not doing either one of those, you are being penalized. Um, and uh, these are the four components of MIPS that I told you about that applies to anybody here practicing uh, medicine. But at the end of the game, in order to make this work and to help uh, 
control the cost of medicine, this is a zero-sum game, meaning that if you're really good at, you know, or, or, or even if you're, you know, doing something with all of these four components of MIPS and the scoring, um, it's a zero-sum game, meaning that everyone's being lumped together in the country, and if you're uh, uh, above the mean or the median, however that's determined, you know, you'll receive some type of bonus. So NYU, uh, I think, does fairly well with this every year. But if you're below that mean, even if you're compliant with all of these things that they're asking us to do, there's going to be a penalty. And there are some physicians who are just saying, you know what, I ain't doing any of this stuff. Give me the penalty. I'll make it up with volume, although fee-for-service is something that is rapidly changing, as we know. Um, you could uh, participate in an alternative, alternative payment model. Uh, lots of uh, qualifiers here. We don't really need to go into this. Um, uh, but it's kind of hard to be in an alternate payment model because there's lots of requirements. Some examples may be being part of an accountable care organization uh, that has all sorts of regulations and requirements. Again, I'm not going to go into all of this just right now, um, but that's one example. Another example would be, you know, being participant in, in a bundled payment um, uh, initiative, and we'll talk a little bit about that. NYU, uh, well, actually any hospital that provides joint replacements is in some type of bundled payment. Uh, but bundled payment means that, you know, over a course of a period of time, uh, the hospital or the healthcare system is responsible for the cost of care. Uh, and if you do it well and efficiently with good outcomes, you do well. Uh, if not, you're going to lose money. Um, uh, so, as I said, this is in effect. Um, I see this last thing in 2019, bonuses and penalties uh, imposed. It's the only Medicare quality reporting system and applies to any practitioner with an NPI number, um, which certainly includes me and a lot of people here in this room. Um, and this actually now is at some level the law of the land, at least with regards to joint replacements, um, um, payments for uh, single joint replacements. Um, are now the law of the land in most places within the country. Uh, there are some select geographic regions that have been exempt, uh, but basically payments are bundled for lower limb arthroplasty over a period of 90 days, uh, and hospitals are required or healthcare systems are provided to provide that care. They're responsible for all the costs that are incurred, including readmissions, medicines, post-acute care, rehab, no matter where it's provided, at home, inpatient, wherever. So this is the law of the land. I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, how NYU participated in the, in the uh, piloting for this project, and, uh, and we did well. So more to follow on that later in the presentation. Um, the whole idea, though, with bundled care, and we'll talk about this later as well, is that in order for it to be effective, um, uh, they had to provide some incentive. And then the incentive is to really coordinate care well throughout that 90-day period. So it's just not you know, doing well in the acute care hospital and getting folks out on a timely basis, but really managing their care during the post-acute care, and that's where rehab comes in. You know, it's, it's, it's my belief, and certainly that of the, um, of the uh, American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehab and others, that there's no better physician group or, or field to manage that post-acute care continuum than physical medicine and rehabilitation and physiatrists. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. Uh, so the whole paradigm is, is shifting, and this is really an opportunity. So we talked about the triple aim of medicine. It's my belief it's not going to be successful or as successful as it can be 
without the involvement of physical medicine and rehabilitation. We improve patient experience. If you take a look at you know, surveys across the hospital, the inpatient rehab service, always way at the top. We can reduce hospital costs by decreasing length of stay. We can improve outcomes. Um, and we do this by developing innovative programs that really maximize that bottom line by decreasing costs and improving outcomes. Um, I believe we're critical. So how will we do this? Basically, I kind of said it, by what we've been doing for decades, certainly since I've been in this field, um, which has been a long time. Um, uh, we do this by focusing on patient-centered, coordinated care that's comprehensive across the entire continuum. And who does that better than physiatrists and rehab specialists? I don't know of anybody. And we do this also by delivering high-quality care that's also, and this is important, reconciled with disease frequency within a particular regional population. And the regional population, you know, for us here, um, at least at, at uh, NYU, is the NYU patient population uh, for health and hospital. Um, that's going to apply uh, probably more to Bellevue. And for the VA, it's really the VA system. Um, and that's that regional population uh, that I think is important for us to keep in mind. So what I want to do is to spend a little bit of time in talking about how programs or, or projects across the country over the course of you know, the past decade or so has really uh, improved patient outcome by involving physical medicine and rehabilitation. And I'll start off with what's available in the ambulatory world. And I suspect that um, uh, folks who are listening in remotely who are part of our spine center are very familiar with this, uh, um, uh, this trial. This was done uh, a, um, a study that was uh, reported in Spine Care in 2014. And basically what they did was uh, there was an insurance company that mandated that prior to any non-surgical spinal uh, procedure, um, patients had to have a physiatry consultation. Uh, and what they did was they took data from two years prior to that mandatory consultation and compared it to outcomes uh, two years post. Um, and uh, they had some findings, um, uh, some of which are not so terribly surprising. You can imagine that physiatry consultation increased quite a bit, in this case, 70%. Of course, well, of course, it was mandated. You couldn't have surgery unless you saw a physiatrist. Um, uh, there was also a proportionate decrease in surgical referrals, as you can well imagine. But as a result of the physiatrist, who, and, and we have um, a very unique perspective on musculoskeletal care. Not all of it is necessarily putting a needle into somebody or a knife to somebody. Um, but we really look at that whole person. Um, and we have a much more holistic approach to the treatment of spine care. Um, uh, so spine operations decreased by 25% because the physiatrists uh, presumably were successful in treating these patients without the surgery. Uh, now, despite the fact that they weren't getting surgery, patient satisfaction remained quite good during this, uh, this study period. In fact, the, the satisfaction for folks um, after uh, the mandatory consultation uh, was initiated was much higher than uh, before with regards to the folks who actually wound up getting surgery. So seeing a physiatrist, oh gee, it's a good thing. Who would have thought? Um, so as a result of this, uh, for this insurance uh, provider, uh, the total cost for spine care decreased by 12%, double digits. That's impressive. Uh, put that into dollars and cents. Uh, in one year, they saved $14 million just by involving physiatrists in the care of their patients. 
this despite the fact that the cost of the surgery itself actually increased. So for those who got surgery, even though there was a 25%, the cost of each individual surgery uh, was significantly higher because of new equipment and procedures and what have you. Uh, so perfect example, this was just six years ago, of how physiatry can have a very positive impact in maintaining good outcomes, maybe even improving outcomes, and doing it for less money. Hmm. That sounds like a triple aim of medicine. And of course, I would say quadruple because it's good for physiatry. This has been shown previously. Uh, Haig, who actually was a co-author in that study I just mentioned, um, gosh, now 30 years ago, uh, did a study looking at just musculoskeletal problems uh, in a workers' comp population and found that those who saw physiatrists actually got to work uh, back uh, quicker, missed fewer days. Um, and then in a more recent study, uh, just a decade ago, uh, providing pre-rehabilitation uh, or pre-habilitation uh, prior to spine surgery uh, resulted in decreased length of stay for those patients who got that care, almost similar to what we're doing with some of our transplant patients right now, giving them pre um, uh, prehabilitation prior to their surgery, and they have better functional outcomes and decreased length of stay because they're going into their surgery in better condition and they also know what to expect afterwards. So just a few examples of how in the ambulatory world, and there are many, many more, um, to show that how rehab can improve outcomes and decrease costs. Uh, and some of this we did um, by focusing on the things that really that we know really well. You know, we we take a look at the whole patient much more so I think than any other specialty. You now we'll look at their lifestyle and how <laughs> lifestyle changes, weight loss, exercise uh, makes a difference. Our care is very patient centered, um, and 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 who knows exercise better than physiatrists? In fact, uh, Dr. Whiteson um, is the chair of the uh, new community group in the APMNR Exercises Medicine and. In fact, it is. Um, we take a, a much more holistic view. Um, the exercises that we provide are really more functionally related, and function is really what we do on a day-by-day -day basis. All right, so uh, we've done a fair amount of stuff in the ambulatory world. What have we done in the inpatient side? Because this is where a lot of the costs are as well, and where a lot of uh, healthcare reform is focusing on. Not entirely, but a lot of it certainly is. Um, and there's been a lot done here, and some of it here at NYU. So as rehabilitation specialists, we all know the value of mobility. In fact, it was Howard Rusk back in World War II who knew that keeping uh, young servicemen and women in bed after minor ailments um, just resulted in longer periods of, of disability. Um, so getting up and exercising is good. So we know that value. It's almost really you know, the, the bedrock of, of our specialty. Um, yet interestingly, up until recently, the most immobile folks among us, those who are in intensive care settings, who are so critically ill, receive the very least in rehabilitation. Um, the cost of care in an ICU uh, and the after effects are tremendous. They are huge. So um, this is data from actually several years ago, uh, but let's say prior to 2015 or 14 or so, fewer than 13% of patients in an ICU received any rehabilitation at all. And it's not hard to imagine why. I mean, can you imagine getting up, you know, uh, to exercise somebody who's intubated, who has a bunch of lines, um, you know, and, you know, in the, you know, we want to keep them quiet so they're sedated. I mean, this is really a lot of work. How on earth could you possibly do this? 
Um, and we'll get to that in a moment. But if you think of the consequences of critical illness, um, you know, critical illness, polyneuropathy, polymyopathy, it just doesn't affect someone's hospitalization, but you know, their life over a long period of time. A high rate of neuromuscular dysfunction, nearly half of ICU patients will experience something along those lines possibly related to the duration of mechanical ventilation. Um, and then when you're in the hospital for longer periods of time, because of this neuromuscular dysfunction, your cost of care goes up because cost of care is so related to how long you're in the hospital for. And then, as I mentioned, there are long-term consequences. You know, you think, okay, after you ICU and, and you get out, everything is perfectly fine. I'm okay, I survived if you survived. Um, but there are a lot of physical and psychological impairments that can go on for very long periods of time for folks who've been in the ICU for, uh, for long periods of time. So this is, you know, it, it goes on for a long, uh, a long time, decreases quality of life, um, decreased likelihood of returning to employment if you've been in an ICU. These are really bad, bad things to see happen. And part of it's related to the amount of time that they're in the ICU and that they're just so immobile. And this is well referenced. You can see here, um, this is just not my thoughts, this is documented evidence. Um, but when you think about providing rehabilitation in an ICU setting, um, so many barriers come to mind, particularly if you haven't done it. I mean, how, you know, people are just too sick. Right, you know, they're 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 ventilated. They're you know they're you know they're, how can you possibly get someone that's that sick up? And it reminds me when I go to China sometimes, um, you know, I used to tell folks that when uh, we're in the uh, you know when we do our bundle care and we're getting folks up after their total knee or total hip replacement, sometimes their first PT session is in the recovery room. They'll look at me like I'm cross-eyed and they're saying, "What? They're too sick. Don't you have to let their metabolism you know equilibrate over the next month?" I kid you not. That's what that's what folks told me. Um, so this 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 thought that they're too sick. Maybe they're not. Um, how do you get somebody up who's mechanically ventilated? Well, you can do it. Um, there are too many lines. You're going to pull out their IV lines, you know, their heart monitors. Uh, it just costs too much. Think of all of the therapists that you have to put into the ICU in order to get someone to sit and stand and maybe even take a, a few steps. And then there's the whole issue of sedation, right? These patients are, are, you know, they're intubated. You need to sedate them. Kind of the old thought that a quiet patient is a good patient. We would never say that in TBI, because none of my patients are quiet. Um, um, but these are some of the perceived barriers um, uh, to providing uh, care to critically ill patients. Uh, so if you're going to do it, you really need to make this a, a, a team effort. And when we initiated this at, at NYU, um, uh, there were lots and lots of meetings with the entire ICU staff, with the uh, intensivists, the nursing staff, and um, it took a lot of work because they had to change you know, what they had been practicing and the way they've been practicing for decades and how they were taught. Um, so we needed the buy-in of the entire ICU staff. They had to start to think about how you're going to minimize sedation sort of wake patients up earlier uh, and for less periods of time. Um, and the hospital has to really commit to this. Um, so if you're going to, and we did this as a pilot, so at NYU, they actually gave us um, a per diem staff to make sure that we could staff the ICUs to see if this would actually work before they made those positions permanent. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, so the hospital has to commit to this uh, because initially it is a financial commitment with the hope that they'll get that back at the end, and they do. 
Um, you have to select your patients carefully, so not everybody is a candidate for this. Um, uh, you have to think about what their premorbid skills were, not only cognitively, but functionally and what have you, any weight-bearing restrictions. Um, and, you know, and this has all been sort of well-documented in a bunch of literature that, in fact, when you do this, it is feasible. Uh, minimizing sedation is key. It's hard to mobilize somebody who's sleeping. Um, uh, so, you know, something as simple from uh, changing a standing sedation order to one that's just a PRN uh, can go a long way. Um, and as you are mobilizing folks who are critically ill, we really need to pay attention to what's going on with them from a hemodynamic perspective. You gotta watch their O2 saturations. You gotta watch their blood pressure and their pulse uh, and all of this. And there are some folks that you have to be particularly careful with, particularly if there's a new cardiac event, um, uh, but it's doable. But again, you know, we know as physiatrists that when we write prescriptions, we never write evaluate and treat and sign our names. We're, you know, we're providing precautions. Those precautions should be specific. We should be saying exactly what should be done. Um, that's what we do as physiatrists. That's why physiatrists are important in this whole um, uh, endeavor. Uh, lots of published studies that show that this is in fact feasible. It's doable. Who would have thought? Getting folks up who are ventilated uh, and getting them up and walking. We can do it. Go Rosie the Riveter from World War II. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.